Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and this is the Kingdom Ethics Podcast, Season 2. It's 2020, and we're back. We've been off for three months, and we've been busy. David, you've been on sabbatical, right? It's a nice... A nice practice, this thing called sabbatical. Many people wish they could have a thing called sabbatical where they stay home and get paid. Well, people think that sabbatical is a long version of vacation that pastors and professors get. Um, that is definitely not the case at Mercer University, uh, where you apply for a sabbatical based on a project or two that you're going to do. Only two. <laughs> I actually I actually told them I would do three and I was only able to accomplish two. Sorry. And um, and then you have to you have to produce. And um, and so I worked very hard on my sabbatical. And I think our, our listeners will will be uh, seeing the fruit of that uh, over the months to come. Yeah, it's there's several coming out soon. The because uh, there's there are three writing projects that are soon to emerge. Right. Yes. Um, 2019 was a rare year in which I did not publish a book. I started my career in 1993. My first book came out in 94. And by the grace of God and just how my my opportunities have unfolded, it's been an average of a book a year since 1994. It's pretty spectacular. Um, and in 2020, there will be three. And... Uh, they'll all come out spring, summer, if all goes well. And uh, we uh, maybe I won't say more because we're going to be talking about each one. Of yeah, those we'll projects. bring up both. All, okay. of, all three of these projects are going to come up this season because this season is going to be different. Uh, last year, we explored great moral leaders. We worked through the moral leadership book with some diversions and detours uh, where we got excited or where things happened or where things needed a response. But mostly... We took a person of significance and we spent time with them following you and Colin's book, uh, Great Moral Leaders, Moral Leadership for a Divided Age, available everywhere. Books are sold, probably. I mean, we're, books are really just sold online, so you can get it wherever books are sold. Don't, don't say it. Don't say it. <laughs> there's, there's a coffee shop in, the, in downtown Ackworth, where I live, and... I say it's a coffee shop or a bookstore. It's a bookstore on the sign, but really they sell coffee and toys and cookbooks. And there's really, there aren't many books left in the bookstore. Don't make me sad. We're starting a new season. A uh, new season. I'm a bookstore person. I love bookstores. If I had another life, I'd probably run a really cool bookstore. That's sort of what you're, that's where we're recording in the, the basement office. It's sort of a really cool library. Um, but for this season, we're going to, we will spend some time with a few large personalities, but we're also going to talk about these writing projects and we're going to tackle some issues, uh, do some Christian ethics and maybe keep up with the nastiness that'll be the political season. It is an election year and it's going to be a doozy, I'm sure. So yes, we will, we'll do that. There's, there's a lot of energy around, and not all of it good around the election season. I, I preached this past Sunday, I was in the pulpit. And the title of my sermon was, quote, a political sermon, end quote. And I put on Facebook, this Sunday I'm preaching, the title is a political sermon. Does that make you intrigued or make you want to avoid it? And people not only posted that none of them wanted to come hear such a sermon, but some of them were immediately angry with me for having even dared approach such a topic. And basically what I told them 
my my sermon was fairly vanilla. It's it's up on Facebook if anyone's interested. What I basically told them was, do not let the political landscape be your 2020. Take back some self-differentiation and control over your life. Impeachment shouldn't be the most exciting thing in your life. The president's Twitter shouldn't be the first thing you read in the morning. News doesn't have to be the only thing on your Facebook page. That's a re- that's really good advice. Uh, there's a lot that could be said about that, but I also I made a New Year's resolution myself. I do a lot of New Year's resolutions, by the way, pages of them. Actually, it's silly, but but and that was one of those New Year's resolutions was not to let Donald Trump dominate my consciousness in 2020. Um, and I saw an interesting um, comment that. For those who pay attention to Twitter and to the culture, there's kind of like a Trump tax that we all pay. Mm. Um, that whatever comes off of his Twitter feed, especially, or whatever angry thing he says, or whatever, or or whatever challenge to the rule of law. Now I'm I'm revealing more than I should. Perhaps maybe we'll we'll wait on some of this. But anyway, it filters into the consciousness of everybody who's paying attention. Mm-hmm. You have to deal with it. You have to deal with it. And that's a tax. If if we had a different kind of president, we wouldn't be taxed in that way. Maybe we'd be taxed in a different way. Yeah, yeah. it also just sheer genius, maybe. I mean, it's hard to tell sometimes yeah. Yeah. There is whether a... it's a blind squirrel finding a nut or if it's tactical genius. But he controls the narrative. He Whatever does. he does, he has the ability to come into your house and change the way you what you're thinking about. There was uh, a guy who didn't last very long in the presidential race named Steve Bullock. I liked him. He was the governor of Montana. And he said, uh, with that kind of upper Midwest, I don't know what, or the Mountain West kind of twang, he basically (laughs) said, "If if I become your president, you won't think about me for weeks at a time and you'll be glad. (laughs) (laughs) I I would have voted for Uh, that if that was the campaign slogan. (laughs) I won't tweet. <laughs> <laughs> that, that could have. Car- I thought that was going to carry him a long way, but it didn't. So, so yeah, we've there's there's a lot going on. There's a lot to talk about, and this year is going to be a fascinating one to be in the United States. Um, and we'll talk more about some of these projects and such as we get going. But it's a busy year for you. Uh, we just updated the CTPL website with the list of all the places you're speaking this year, and it's a well, not even this year. This Till May this semester, right, yeah, and it's it's staggering. You're quite busy. Um, tomorrow I go in for orientation for my demon at uh, Mercer, so I'll start my Doctor of Ministry. Ironically named a demon. We have to work on that. Well, it's so fun. It's the Doctor of Ministry D dot Min, but demon, demon, demon is perfect and. And for generations, people have been laughing about the demon degree that all the ministers are getting. It it makes perfect sense. Yep. So I'm joining the ranks of those who possess a demon, <laughs> and hopefully not the ranks of those who are demon-possessed. So we, we brought up Trump, and we brought up some of your writing projects. Here's here's where I'd like to start us this season. There's, there's this magazine out there. It's been prominent at times. It's disappeared from consciousness at times, but right now people are talking about Christianity Today, a magazine you've had some history with. We'll talk about that later. Um, They wrote an article from the editor titled, Trump Should Be Removed from Office. 
says the evangelical Christian magazine and the internet exploded. Um, and it's not, it's not odd that they've weighed in on this. The last, we've only impeached three presidents right. and they weighed in on the last two. They wrote articles on Nixon. They wrote articles on Clinton. And I think they agreed both times that that president, those presidents should go as well. I read those articles. I don't remember. Certainly Clinton. I don't remember what they said about Nixon. Yeah, exactly where it went. But they, they come to this. There's the paragraph. But the facts in this instance are unambiguous. The president of the United States attempted to use his political power to coerce a foreign leader to harass and discredit one of the president's political opponents. That is not only a violation of the Constitution, but more importantly, it is profoundly immoral. So that CT has turned on the president. This is the, the magazine founded by the late Reverend Billy Graham. And it's always, it's been treated as sort of what evangelicals are thinking about. So I'm wondering what you think on this. Is this, as some internets believe, an evangelical turning point or... Are they just jumping ship? Are they moving to post? Do you think this is a moment? Do you think this matters? It doesn't mean anything for evangelicalism at large. I always slur the end of that because I'm not entirely sure how to make it not sound crazy. It was surprising uh, to see that my old editor, Mark Galley at Christianity Today, had ventured that editorial just on the brink of Christmas. And it did explode on not just on the internet, but all major news sources. You know, he, he was top line New York Times, CNN. Mm -hmm. I I remember from when I was very active as an evangelical activist on torture and on climate change in the O's. The decade that is now... The 20 aughts. The 20 aughts, the decade that is now two decades behind us. That whenever somebody self-identified as an evangelical took a visible position against the Republican president, mm -hmm. it was news because even then, the idea that the evangelical, white evangelicals in the U.S. were deeply identified with the Republican Party was already very strong. Yeah, the moral majority still kind of existed in people's consciousness. Right, and I mean, in that the idea that there's a alliance between white evangelicals and Republican, the Republican Party is well-founded. It goes back to the late 70s. So, so you know, um, somebody described it to me as, um, if a dog bites a, a man, that's not a story. If a man bites a dog, that's a story. <laughs> So it's a man bites dog. Uh, evangelicals go after a Republican, a leader. I I reread that editorial this morning before we um, started recording, and I was struck by certain things about it. Um, one is, uh, Galley uh, felt the need to say that um, that the impeachment process hadn't offered the president an opportunity to present uh, much of a defense. Mm -hmm. He tries to be level. He's trying, what he's doing there is he's trying to say, hey, I'm, I'm not some raving liberal. I'm going to accept that, which I don't actually think um, is a fair 
uh, statement, by the way. But that's what he said. So I think he was trying to say, hey, it's that kind of on the one hand, on the other hand thing right. that Christianity Day has often done. And then um, the move from the paragraph that you quoted where he basically says, uh, well, it's a violation of the rule of law, but the main thing is it's grossly immoral. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you impeach presidents primarily, well, it's high crimes and misdemeanors. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's a kind of a moralistic move that evangelicals have historically been known for. Mm -hmm. In other words, the main thing is not the abuse of the presidential office. The main thing is that this is a man without a moral compass. Um, what's interesting about that move is, and he, he went there next. Well, the lack of a moral compass has been clear right. for decades. He, he lists in the article like his dealings with women and money and how he's abused laborers and such things. But that's not news right and and that's dog bites man <laughs> that's who he is. is it has been for since the 70s it's the brand yeah and christianity day never really commented on that and most evangelicals white evangelicals have been okay with it um so but i i did think it was courageous now it's interesting uh mark galley is retiring on january 4th ah and, um and so i think that a senior editor of Christianity Today who who hoped for a long future tenure at that magazine perhaps would not have written that editorial. It's like the Republican politicians who who have concluded that in the Trump era, the only space, only way one can criticize this president is by retiring or leaving. That's how you say that I'm not on board. Mm -hmm. So, but I did think it was brave. I thought it was late, but I thought it was brave. Um, we haven't talked really about Trump much uh, on this podcast, but uh, ever since he came down that golden escalator spewing invective against uh, Mexican immigrants, um, I knew he was trouble. Uh, it violates a plumb line of Christian ethics, um, human dignity, uh, respect for all persons, uh, I think it violates what we need our political leaders to be, uh, people who who care about uh, the common good, human dignity, and social justice. Um, now, that's irrespective of what one thinks our immigration policy should be. It was the nature of the rhetoric. Mm -hmm. It's the dehumanizing uh, nature of the rhetoric. It's, you know, Jesus talked about um, out of the heart, comes forth the words um, uh, Donald Trump for decades has revealed the darkness of his heart by the things that he has said and done. And he should never have been elected president. The fact that he was elected president says very disturbing things about the nature of our country um, and about um, where the Republican Party was when they nominated him out of 17 options. And then where our country was, it does speak to the weakness of the Democratic candidate in 2016. And I'm always reminded of that. If the Democrats had nominated almost anybody else, it might have been a different outcome. Mm -hmm. But so, so I, I was warning in my religion news service columns from July of 2015, this guy is really trouble. Don't go here. Don't go here. And we did. And 
I do believe that character is destiny. And um, I mean, I've been teaching in Christian ethics for years that the formation of character is so important because it tends to shape who people are and who people are is reflected in their everyday actions. Um, for decades, Donald Trump has skirted the edges of the law, if not beyond, uh, certainly um, demonstrated a kind of amorality, no, no particular moral compass, um, has exploited workers, women, contractors, who he doesn't pay, um, uh, traded in wives for new wives, slept with porn stars while married to somebody else. Basically, another way to say it is he's demonstrated no concept of covenant or promise keeping throughout his career. He's also played racial politics since the, since the beginning of his career. Um, Central Park Five was a case where five teenagers were accused of assaulting a white woman, five black teenagers, and the charges were eventually dismissed, but he called for the death penalty for those, for those young men, and even when the charges were dismissed, uh, continued to say that they were guilty. He was the leader of the birther campaign against mm -hmm. uh, Barack Obama, saying he was not born in this country. Um, race baiting, covenant breaking, lying, uh, fraudulent activity in business, um, overvaluing his his assets when claiming wealth, undervaluing them when reporting for taxes, hiding his taxes from the American people, still hiding them. Um, he's a shady character. He should never have been elected. And so, so one of the great stories of our time, and one of the things I write about in my new book, is why did 81% of white evangelicals vote for him? And why do 75% of white evangelicals still support him? Um, it is, it is the, one of the great wonderments of our moment, and it is also driving a lot of people away from Christianity, especially evangelical Christianity. So, so what is it in evangelical Christianity that brought us to this moment? We're diving into the book yeah. here, so. Just chapter 8 of the new book that will be called After Evangelicalism which I'm terribly excited about. It'll be coming out probably August or September this year, the third of the three. Uh, my only, the solo project, the only solo project of those three. Mm -hmm. What is it? Well, there are a lot of answers to that. Um, one thing is a, I would say a, um, a marriage. <laughs> it's funny, a marriage between white evangelical Christians and the Republican Party that has that that has um, become unbreakable, and that's a forty-year-long marriage started in the late seventies, and it began as a kind of a bargain. Uh, this was in the era of Jimmy Carter as president, and mm -hmm. Ronald Reagan was running for president, and. And the bargain was... Jimmy Carter the Baptist. Yeah. The bargain was that, that the Republicans would offer um, conservative social values on issues like homosexuality and abortion and feminism. 
and they would make that part of their agenda going forward. And, and this would appeal to conservative white Christians, and not just white. And, and the, the preachers and Christian activists would be willing to accept other aspects of the, of the Republican agenda at that time that were not, you might say, native to Christian belief, like mm -hmm. um, a hardline stance against the Soviet Union, support for nuclear weapons building and expansion, um, kind of libertarian economics. Um, and they would accept that. And so, so you might say that the Republican Party of Reagan was a party of uh, low taxes, low regulation, cutting cuts in social service programs, uh, expansion of the military, a hardline Cold War kind of perspective, mm -hmm. and conservative Christian uh, perspectives on issues like abortion and homosexuality, and to some extent feminism. Now, so that was that was the official bargain, and that worked for both sides. the The Republicans got um, the organizing clout of all those fundamentalist and evangelical churches, especially in the South. Uh, the, the Republicans solidified their hold on the solid South as well as the Midwest. All those nice church-going mm -hmm, white... The Bible Belt. The Bible Belt, all those church-going white Christian folks. So they got um, a massive chunk of legislators and a, a huge electoral college uh, chunk for any Republican candidate who they would put forward. The preachers got the, one of the two main parties in the United States uh, to write into their agenda as a non-negotiable every year, basically a conservative position on abortion and homosexuality. Uh, stem cells, when that was an issue. Mm -hmm. uh, euthanasia, when that was an issue. Israel's always Israel, in there. Israel's in there, yeah. And uh, though that had been more of a bipartisan thing, Though that's eroding some, mm -hmm. and uh, and and homosexuality and feminism. So, um, the other side needs to be said. The perception was that the Democratic Party uh, was becoming very liberal on everything: um, anti-war, um, regulatory on economics, um, not so not so into the nuclear weapons. Um, uh, you know, open-minded and, and, and actually inclusive on homosexuality, uh, pro-feminist, um, and pro-choice, and now uh, pro-abortion, one might say. Uh, we could talk about that sometime. But <clears throat> so, so I think the Republicans saw an opening that as our country was splitting along left-right culture wars lines, that they could solidify their hold on the conservative Christian population in this way and they succeeded so so one answer in the short term is that the republicans could put forward a till of the hun for the presidential nomination and would get 75 to 80 percent of the white evangelical vote as long as the till of the hun promised to continue the bargain right it's, which is what happened right well <clears throat> I mean, I'm not identifying Donald Trump right. with Attila the Hun. Do Donald Trump is not the historical figure known as Attila the Hun. <laughs> or you heard it here Khan, first. Or it's not Hitler. Mussolini. Okay, so 
But so in other words, it doesn't really matter who the Republicans put forward for a presidential candidate as long as he checks the boxes. By the way, even when it was um, John McCain, who was not really with them on some of that stuff, um, the support only dropped down to something like 74% or 72% Mm -hmm. or whatever. But so, um, but my recent research leads me to conclude that the situation is actually, uh, it goes back much further than that. That, that we have to take race seriously as um, a fundamental reason why the moral majority type folks arose in the 70s as it was, that part of what the Southern fundamentalist preachers wanted, like Falwell wanted, was protection for their segregationist uh, churches and schools mm-hmm. um, during the time that the civil rights movement had won all the victories and had delegitimized seg- segregation. Um, so, so that was one thing that drove conservative, especially Southern whites, Christians into the arms of the Republican Party. As the Republican Party embraced what was called the Southern strategy on race, um, the uh, that was appealing to Southern racist Christians. Um, but then, when when you actually look back further, modern fundamentalism, with very few exceptions, and modern evangelicalism, going as, which we, I'm tracing to the 1940s, always was politically conservative for the most part. Always. Tra- tended towards a kind of a, a reinforcement of patriarchal, white, patriotic, um, anti-democratic, anti-liberal, um, anti-New Deal, anti-Great Society kind of uh, vision. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and you can actually trace the story all the way back into the 19th century that Protestant Christianity kind of split between a progressive wing and a conservative wing that you can you can see going back at least as far as the battles over abolition in the eight, in the mid nineteenth century, and then the social gospel in the early twentieth century. Um, and so, but what happened is the progressive Protestants mainly ended up under the main line. Mm-hmm. You know, your nat- Methodists, your Presbyterians, uh-huh, right. National Council of Churches, type. yeah, and the fundamentalists ended up separating off, licking their wounds, building their own separate institutions, and gradually morphing into the evangelical movement of the 1940s, and and um, and this was fairly quiet politically, um, but they were always conservative, but fairly quiet about it until the 70s when they got mobilized under uh, Falwell and Pat Robertson and stuff like that. So, so here's the, here's the most pessimistic way to say it, that Donald Trump turns on conservative, white, evangelical, and fundamentalist Christians in a way that nobody has since Reagan, if not, uh, and he may trump Reagan, um, because he... He, are, 
he explicitly articulates and signals the darkest thread of especially Southern white mm-hmm. conservative Christianity, all mingled with um, race and xenophobia uh, and a kind of a America is for white people patriotism. And so in that, and, and if that's the case, and this is what a lot of uh, scholars of color are saying, and we're saying in 2015 and 2016, if that's the case, white evangelicals have supported Trump, not despite all of that but rhetoric, because of it. but because of mm. it. Yikes. And if that's the case, then the indictment of white evangelicals in their uh, embrace of Trump is as as um, depressing and disastrous as could possibly be. And that is what I think a lot of our young people have concluded. Um, the polling is showing that the the move away from evangelicalism, the revulsion, even nausea about white evangelicalism um, on the part of millennials and Generation Z is located right there. Mm. Parents and grandparents who were respected, pastors and elders yes. and churches, you guys taught me something better than this, and now this guy comes along, and you're not just saying, well, he's the lesser of two evils, but he's God's gift to America or something. That is so incomprehensible to them and so offensive that they are fleeing churches and families and schools uh, and parachurch, any right. setting in which that is being articulated. How about, so There's there are the ones who are saying that this is indeed there are those who are saying that Trump is God's gift to America, to the evangelical uh, tradition. And he did tweet, I think, two days ago that he's the most evangelical president we've ever had, which he might be right in a way that he didn't mean to be, mm. uh, if what you just said is all correct. Yeah. Um, but what about those who, I hear this one a lot, that they don't like him, that he's not good um that they they can't stand the moral failure and whatnot but and maybe he's not the messiah maybe he's cyrus maybe he is an imperfect tool being used in mysterious ways by god and that and they did a lesser of two evils decision because they they said i didn't vote for trump i voted for the supreme court nominees he i uh, voted for the appointments he would make in the lower courts I voted for pro-life. I voted for um, whatever a good thing would be, but they knew they had to make this lesser of two evil choices because the other was so terrible from their perspective. Um, What do we... How do we get to that? Should evangelicals lesser of two evils? Mm. um, And... If we're if we're post evangelicals, how should we think through some of these things? That's it. That's all you've got. That's all. That's oh. that's it. Just a Just, a four pronged, mm-hmm. three minute long question. Uh-huh. Right. So lesser of two evils, voted for Trump because he wasn't right. Clinton. Voted for Trump. Maybe he's uh, Cyrus the Great. Well, I would say that. Um, Worldly politics is never pure. 
and um, mm-hmm. and our motives um, to to follow Jesus faithfully. That's a lot more complicated in the political arena than a lot of other arenas because of the imperfection and impurity of of um, of the world and of worldly politics. And so, so I can respect the idea that people remain clear-eyed about the character of the man and conclude that all things considered, given where the Democratic Party is, given where the Republican Party is, that they're, they're going to hold their nose and vote mm-hmm. for Trump and, and continue to support him compared to the alternatives, right? We, unfortunately, we don't have a parliamentary system with six different parties. You know, we have two and they have polarized. And, and you know, so people saying, maybe just barely, all things considered, I got to stay with them. That's different from some of this um, servile um, uh, deifying of the man. Right. Some people are thrilled. I mean, they're, they're all into it and, and they can't see the flaws anymore. And that's that's scary because it's so obvious, right? Mm-hmm. So, so yes, I see that. Um, and when the Democrats come forward with a candidate, uh, and it's one on one again, um, I'm sure we'll hear some of the same kinds of arguments. Yeah. Um, I think that for some, the issue of abortion has been elevated so profoundly that as long as Trump continues to appoint conservative judges on that issue, especially at the Supreme Court level. That's all that matters. I think that's right. way too narrow for thinking about politics, but that is what some of our fellow believers operate based on. Um, the idea that a flawed person can um, can choose to advance policies that you believe are good, um, that's certainly the case. Um, and it is true that, that Trump gets that conservative... Christians and some other religionists um, uh, are, they feel threatened by the growing um, secularization of a significant chunk of American society. And they are concerned that if a certain kind of aggressive Democrat were elected president with a, with the sufficient support in the Senate and the courts and in the house, that their way of life would be directly mm-hmm. attacked. Um, that if they don't allow gay people to be pastors, that, or to be professors that they might, you know, be driven out of business or whatever. I think that's a little overblown, but I do understand the fear. So, so my advice to the Democrats is: don't elect a culture warrior; elect a pragmatist who 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 can, or nominate a pragmatist who can make folks like that who are reasonable feel safe. Are there any of those running? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> you think they'll make it? I don't know. <laughs> um. So so I. I think it's always important to understand the concerns that motivate people and and to take them seriously uh, when they're worthy of being taken seriously. Um, it's the um, it's the the loss of moral clarity, the inability to call good good and evil evil anymore, and to to turn things upside down, um, to not say that something is wrong when it's clearly wrong. Um, that's, we're certainly seeing it on the part of some evangelicals and some elect Republicans in Congress because, because Trump now owns that party and especially the party in the house, the, mm-hmm. you know, he owns it. It's his. Now what's interesting is the party is shrinking. 
everybody who is staying on board is towing the line. But Christians, when Christians engage politics, we shouldn't be playing those kinds of games. We should have much more independence than that. Uh, we, we can't be owned by any politician or any political party. There can be no marriage between faithful Christians and a political party. Right. There can be a temporary agreement that uh, you look like the better of the options right now. We support you, but even their preachers shouldn't be doing that. I mean, in other words, mm -hmm. voters, right? But anyway, we can talk more about that another time. But but this marriage, it opens the door to any kind of person, amoral, wicked, gaining the support of Bible-believing Christians just because he's of the certain party or because he offers certain things that you want. And um, that's too uncritical. We cannot approach politics that way. Yeah. In, in that sermon I mentioned from this past week, it's still on my mind. Um, I said if we let ourselves just play red team, blue team, then it's all about winning, and winning is not a Christian ethic. Right. And, and especially when you really believe that the other team is dangerous or mm -hmm. evil— can, and if your team, if you as a Christian have a team, then the other team must be. Uh, it, uh, at least it if there's only one way. Jesus team. Right. Yeah. The Jesus team versus the, well, other, other capital O. Mm -hmm. right? Well, then by any means necessary increasingly becomes the ethic. Right. So. Uh, I mean, there are people I, I saw an article in The New York Times last week uh, where people were saying if the Democrats win. Um, we're going to have to take up arms or whatever. In other words, mm -hmm. the apocalyptic nature of the rhetoric um, which this president feeds, um, I think, uh, is scary. Let the Trump sound. <laughs> and it, it yields the, uh, the possibility of violence. Mm -hmm. So We've already seen it. Yeah, and there'll be more, I think. So I, I, I actually fear violence in this 2020 election season. I hope I'm. I hope it's it's not going to happen, but I'm afraid of it. Um, so, I think that that white evangelicals got got into bed with somebody who has a track record of of a betrayal and uh, should never have done it, and are going to rue the day. But meanwhile, from a missional perspective, we're already losing. Mm -hmm. um, our credibility, moral credibility with millions of people and white evangelicalism is being seen as a force of moral deterioration and and I'm capturing that some in the book and trying to suggest better ways forward it's one of the reasons why I could never identify as an evangelical anymore I think that's a great place to stop as a teaser and we'll take the into the next episode. We'll go right into the book. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you, David. Thank you, Jeremy. Thanks, listeners. It's uh, it's good to be back. Happy 2020. And just a friendly reminder, the year 2050 is just as close as the year 1990. Wow. <laughs> this has been the Kingdom Ethics Podcast, a production of Mercer University's Center for Theology and Public Life. We'll see you all soon.